Hi, I'm Ross Greenwood, and these are the Money Minutes. Today, new investors are entering the stock market faster and with less cost than ever before. But as older investors struggle to find income, is all this driving up risk? Great to have your company on the Money Minutes for another episode. And in this one, I want to concentrate on a couple of trends that I see in the stock market right now and that I think really are adding risk for all investors. Now, one is the so-called chase for yield that we've talked about here before, where low interest rates drive up asset prices. But in the meantime, many cash-strapped investors, notably retirees, might take more risk with their portfolios that they don't truly appreciate. Now, shortly I'll speak with Inna Zarina, Senior Investment Strategist with Vanguard Australia, about those risks and how most investors might need to rethink their strategy and their goals in light of the changing investment environment. But look, there's another element that's crept into the stock market. First in the United States, now here. You might even argue that it's a proliferation that's been aided by the coronavirus where people stuck at home had to entertain or sustain themselves. Many turned to the stock market, especially younger investors. And just as Spotify transformed the way we pay and play music, the same for Netflix and movies, a business called Robinhood transformed the way that people in the US buy and sell shares. It's summed up in this clip of Robinhood's co-founder, Baiju Bata, talking with CNBC's Jim Cramer just a few months back. When we first started Robinhood, uh, which was you know, several years ago now, we had you know, lived through the financial crisis of 2008. Right. And we had seen how the younger generation had felt really frustrated, disenfranchised with the way that the system worked. And we saw an opportunity to build a product that really spoke to that generation. And commissions is a part of it. Right. Part of it's also building a product that's easy to use, that's mobile-centric, and that really puts customers first. Right. And all of these things together have been what's really driven us. And the other part about this is, is that from the very beginning, our mission has been to democratize the financial system. Thank you. Um, and for us, this isn't a headline. It's not a gimmick or a billboard ad. It's the central reason why we started the company, and it flows through all the decisions that we make. Now, when I- now, Robinhood, in just four years, has increased its number of accounts from 1 million to 10 million. The average age of those users, just 30. Most are first-time stock market investors. Now, Robinhood is close to the other major American discount brokers, E-Trade, Charles Schwab, and Ameritrade. Its biggest trick was no commission, no fees for stock trades. Effectively, it allowed users to buy shares for no cost whatsoever. Compare that with most of the US discount brokers that charge, on average, around 10 bucks a trade. Though in recent weeks, some of those have been forced to go commission-free like Robinhood as well. Now think about it. The model is, like, like Spotify, as I say, the music sharing app, where if you're prepared to put up with the ads, you can download the music for free. But where Robinhood makes its money is by charging a $5 a month fee for its premium service that's still pretty cheap. But for that 5 bucks a month, the customer also gets $1,000 of margin, a loan if you like, over and above what the value of their stock is in their account. Now, if you go above that $1,000 in borrowings to buy or to short a company, you then get charged interest. So here in Australia in the past few months, a lookalike Robinhood business has emerged. It's called Superhero. Its aim is similar, to get first-timers into the market. 
and to create competition with existing players by making fees cheaper. Now, because of the size of the Australian market, Superhero has not gone fee-free. It's charging 5 bucks a trade, no matter the size, and the option of a $9 a month subscription that gives you access to live market data. Now, compare that with some of the other big players here. ANZ's E-Trade platform charges a flat $19.95 for transactions under $5,000. It then goes up from there. And Comsec, which has a really complicated multi-tiered charging structure, but basically it's $10 if you buy or sell shares up to $1,000, and $19.95 if it's between $1,000 and $10,000, $29.95 up to $25,000, and 0.12% after that. But anyway, here's Superhero co-founder John Winters. He's a broker from formerly Shoreham Partners, explaining the motivation behind the new trading platform. He spoke with Bloomberg just a few days back. I think the risk is is a well understood one in in retail uh, in retail investing. Um, you know, we're not we're not creating something new in that sense. It, it is a well formed industry uh, that in Australia has been around for twenty to twenty five years. Um, but we, we have engaged with with the regulators. We've engaged with the ASX on building this product and. And um, you know, I, I think if we can if we can offer a product that makes investing more accessible. So there's a few things to unpack here. Any time a new player arrives, it creates competition to incumbent players. I think is a really good thing. Any time any organisation encourages people to learn how to put money into the stock market and to invest is also a fantastic thing. Recent studies have shown around 31% of Australian adults hold shares directly. That's one of the highest ownership levels in the world. It's 37% if we include other stock market-based investments. Indeed, if superannuation funds are included, I reckon it'd be way above 90% of people. And it's because of people's knowledge of their superannuation, I think, that's given people the confidence to invest in the stock market. That and about 40 years of ongoing education that really is a testament to the ASX, ASIC and so many others. But any time you get a whole lot of new money into the market, doesn't matter whether it's property or shares or whatever, driving up the prices that don't have necessarily the earnings or the prospects to justify those prices, you also increase the risk of future wipeouts. They do happen. And in this type of environment, even more frequently, I think. But that said, central banks around the world, including our Reserve Bank, have only aided and abetted this increased risk by flooding the world with cheap money that in turn has inflated asset prices and especially many shares. Increased prices mean falling dividend yields, so those who rely on income from their share portfolios are either having to live with less, to bite into their capital, or to find other high-yield alternatives to maintain their lifestyles. All that adds up to more risk for many investors, who now, I believe, are stretching themselves to breaking point. Stretch it, stretch it, make sure the money do. Stretch it, stretch it, make sure the money do. Stretch it, stretch it, make sure the money do. Stretch it, stretch it, stretch it.
I want to bring into this conversation Inna Zarina, Senior Investment Strategist at Vanguard Australia. Now, she's recently just put out a paper that looks at the whole issue about retirees and the greater risk that they're exposed to as a result of this problem of being squeezed up for income, especially in equities portfolios, but not just there, also in fixed interest returns as well. Inna, many thanks for your time. No worries, Ross. Thanks for having me. I just want to take you through the work that you've done here, because quite clearly, one of the problems for many ageing Australians, many people who rely on income coming through, is that there's not a lot of income out there to be had. It doesn't matter whether you go to equities markets, as I've explained, the average yield is now down to around 2.5%. If property values rise, the income shrinks in relative terms, same thing with bond portfolios. And so the real problem is if people try to take on that income style investment, they've also got to increase the amount of risk they're prepared to take with their portfolios. Absolutely. This is the key uh, element of our research. As you rightly observed, over the last uh, 20 or so years, yields on traditional bonds and equities and those portfolios have fallen. And on top of this long-term trend, there is also an impact from the current pandemic. So if you recall, in April, APRA asked banks to defer decisions on dividend payments. And as we have seen since, many companies have either reduced payouts or deferred dividends. And all this generated a lot of uncertainty, particularly for those investors who rely on an income-focused strategy. There's another problem here, as I see it, though, Inna, and that is really as you've got record low interest rates and the Reserve Bank even considering cutting interest rates again, same thing happens all over the world. And as a result, you get some asset valuations that rise in price, uh, which basically is commensurate with those cutting interest rates. The real risk, as I see it, is if something goes wrong in the future, that investors, particularly retirees, might be risking their capital and they might not be conscious of those risks they're taking as a result of them tuning their portfolios to try and increase their income. Absolutely, you're spot on. So many investors, including retirees, are trying to, to generate enough income to sustain their spending by shifting towards high-yield bonds, high-yield equities, or taking on more equity risk altogether. And this uh, shift in the risk profile of their portfolios absolutely uh, creates more risk, which may not be great for investors who are at a close retirement. So there is one other point about this, and that is if, let's say, for example, the pandemic, and even though it seems now that the markets are getting on some sort of equilibrium, but if there is another recession down the track as a result of the enormous amount of government debt that's taken off, we go into a, a genuine recession where property values fall, where stock market values fall, that if they have tweaked their portfolios to try and grab that income, they might find themselves in a situation where there is a catastrophic fall in their capital, which means they can't generate income, or indeed, even so-called safe investments. And here I'm thinking about mortgage-backed investments might not be as safe as what they might have presumed that they were. Absolutely. And those investors who are currently at retirement, they may not have sufficient time to wait for markets to recover. So it certainly presents a big problem for those investors. So then the other option for those people with too little income 
is to start to bite into their capital. Now, that's the other way in which a person can sustain their income. But of course, that might not be the plan for many retirees to start to effectively eat their house, eat their capital early in their retirement years because quite clearly they don't have, if they have retired, an ability to regenerate the income required to, to re-top up their, their savings balance. We think uh, it is actually important to consider both components of return. So it's not necessarily eat into their capital, but it's uh, what we like to, to, to call a total return investing framework. So we think it's important to acknowledge that return comes in two ways. And it's important to take this into consideration both uh, when you build investment portfolio and when, you know, you use those funds to uh, support retirement. Okay, but then what you would also argue with this is for a lot of investors, it's not necessarily smart to just park your money in the bank and to earn almost no interest because under those circumstances, you really would be biting into your capital, into the rump of your savings that are there to perhaps generate an income over 25 or 30 years of your retirement life. Uh, this is another uh, risk you mentioned. So this is about longevity risk. So uh, essentially, uh, in some ideal situation, investors would need to allocate their funds to assets that would support their retirement and people now live longer. So uh, I would say that uh, term deposits, uh, especially given their rates uh, currently are, is certainly not the best option uh, to maintain uh, you know, lifestyle in retirement. And there is another aspect of this when you go to public companies uh, and the dividends that they pay. As you made the observation, many of them, as a result of the pandemic, have either cut dividends or reduced dividends. Uh, and, and so it's now almost those companies themselves. They've got to be in a position that they can make the profits to be able to generate the income to pay the dividends to the shareholders. And so really right now, even all the way back down the chain to those companies and to the managers of those companies, it's the chase for income at every level, whether you're an investor or a chief executive of a public company. I'll ask it a different way for you. I can ask it a different way for you, perhaps. Because you make the observation in a, uh, that companies are reducing dividends. And that means that, of course, they're beholden to their shareholders. The shareholders are chasing, in many cases, higher dividends, better returns. And so there becomes pressure right throughout the boardroom when it comes to this, this chase for profit, the chase for, for income. I think it's, a, it's certainly an interesting observation uh, you made, Ross. So uh, there is certainly chase uh, for yield across the globe, but uh, the question is uh, how to construct those portfolios and how to make investment decisions, you know, taking all the risks into account. So we, we suggest that chase for yield is not, uh, is not in the best interest uh, for investors, but it certainly has been a global phenomenon for, for a number of years. But the one thing that you noted is that the, over the data from your previous 25 years found that total returns generally are not affected by the actual payout. In other words, the dividend payout as capital is not used for dividends and could be reinvested in projects that increase shareholder value. But what you're saying is it doesn't matter how the company makes it, whether it pays it out as dividend or actually has increases in the value of the capital, that it's a total return that's the most important thing for that investor. A total return uh, investment uh, is actually a very good investment approach that encourages investors to consider their goals and risk tolerance, so level of risk they are happy to take, and then construct their portfolio beginning from goals and risk. Does this mean that you think that many investors might have to change 
the way in which they're investing, change their investment approach? I think all investors should consider whether their investment portfolios are aligned to their goals uh, and, and risk profile. So if they, if they already invest in this way, there may be no need to change, but it's really important to maintain that alignment and to talk to their advisors about you know, the best implementation strategy. That's Inna Zarina from Vanguard. Many thanks for her time today. That's it also for the Money Minutes for this episode. Thanks for taking the time to listen. You can always give us your feedback via your podcast app, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, and as in recent times has come up, Amazon as well. This has been a Talent Corp production. I'm Ross Greenwood, and these are the Money Minutes. Stretch it, stretch it, make sure the money do. Stretch it, stretch it, make sure the money do. Stretch it, stretch it, make sure the money do. Stretch it, stretch it, stretch it.